All right, good morning. Welcome to the 9 o'clock service. Glad that you're here this morning. I have good news and bad news. What do you want first? Which do you like to hear first, typically? Somebody says, I have good news and bad news. Um, Don't you want to hear the bad news first, right, so that you can finish on the good news? And that's the nature of this morning's message to you this morning. There's some really bad news, and it's about you and me. And then there's some really good news. And we're building a frame to think about how to live life with the greatest meaning and satisfaction as we were designed to live. You and I were created in the image of God. And that means that every human being, all of us and every human everywhere, has dignity, worth, and value because we were created to represent God in the world. As we look at the world, we realize something went wrong. We're all broken. And this is the bad news that represents this morning's message. But could I just say that until you know the bad news, you'll never fully appreciate how great is the good news. So there is a sense in which We have to go down to see the reality of what it is to be a broken sinner in the world in order to appreciate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we've been singing about this morning who brought us out of our former place into the place that we are forgiven and and we know Him. So again, we're building a frame to think about the way we should live in the world and we've already said that There is a word from God. The Bible is true and authoritative. We do have a heavenly Father who created all things and He's infinite and perfect in every way. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, and He came and lived a perfect life and pointed us to Himself as the Savior who died in our place to forgive us of our sins. And then when He went to heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell every person who trusts in Jesus. And the Spirit of God helps us live in this broken world until the Lord returns. And then we've been talking about what does it mean to be human. If you didn't happen to be here or listen to last week's message, I encourage you because it will help you understand where we are today. But this is the statement that we're going off, the statement that we've been looking. What do we believe? We believe in the Word of God. We believe in our Father who is in heaven. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Spirit of God. And today, we believe, this is the second part of this, that God created Adam and Eve in His image. That was last week. He created them male and female. And they were created to represent Him. But... Days. They sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. And next week, only through the saving, God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, renewed. 
So if you see the three places that we've been last week, God created us in His image. Yay! And then today, we have to look at, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, we as human beings in the line of Adam, we are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. If you're not with me yet, that's the bad news, okay? And it is grave, but you will not appreciate how great our salvation is until you understand how God understands and and describes our own sinful nature. So we're going to talk about sin today. Everybody's excited? Say yay. Okay. Uh, Yeah, sure. Okay. We have to talk about it. So, open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 3 where it is introduced. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at how sin comes on the scene originally, how it is applied to all of us universally, and how it shows up in me personally. So, originally, universally, personally. And then we'll introduce the good news at the end. All right. So how it introduces originally. If you look at chapter 2, the very last verse where God created male and female in His image, He gave a beautiful plan for a man and a woman shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh. Verse 25 of chapter 2 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's God's beautiful, creative design. They were naked, and there was no shame. Think about that. Man and a woman in the garden with God, naked, ashamed, no shame, beautiful. And then shame enters in chapter 3. So we begin to read verse 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you, everybody, die. You got your Bible open, you look over in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of that you shall surely, everybody, die. And now in chapter 3, there is the introduction of a serpent who leads them away from the will and plan of God by introducing to them several things that form the foundation of the way in which sin enters into our own experience. I want you to just look at verse 1, where the serpent says to Eve, did God actually say, and if you want to find out the way in which many times we are led astray is by bringing into question 
the truthfulness of God's statements. We will go away fast if we doubt whether or not God said this or that. That's what the serpent did. Did God actually say? But then he twists the words. Did God say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the answer? Did God say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't. That's not what he said. So there's a twist, um, an intentional misrepresentation of God's will and word to sow confusion in their hearts. She answered, said, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. We would call that a direct contradiction. Not a misrepresentation, but an absolute corollary opposite. You won't die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, you can see certain ways in which the solicitation to disobey God comes with an exaggeration of the prohibition to the neglect of all of the provision that was made. You may eat of every tree, but not this one. And somehow the deceitfulness is, wait, that, that's the one I can't have. You ever see this function in a two-year-old? Don't want you to touch that outlet there. You can touch everything else on the wall, but don't touch that outlet. Why not? <laughs> you know, it's exactly what you want to do. And, and this is the distortion that you have all of this garden, but this one restriction is exaggerated. And then an outright lie. You, you will not die. Another way we could say it is sin won't have consequences. And that's the lie that goes on today in our minds. Sin won't have any consequences. And perhaps God knows that when you eat this, you'll know good and evil. God's holding out on you, and God's not being good to you. So verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. And so it's on. Now what happened? Well, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and then the man and the wife hid themselves. And you can see some of the manifestations of the consequences of the disobedience to God. And I'm not going to deal entirely in this message with the theodicy of the problem of evil, of how it comes. It's presented for us, and here it is, and the consequences are the man and the wife hid themselves. And the Lord called to them and said, where are you? They said, well, we were, we were afraid because we were naked. God said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? 
then the man said, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me. And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Just note in this message, what are the consequences of broken disobedience against God's moral law? It's shame, it's hiding, it's blaming. And all of humanity deals with the consequences of shame for not measuring up, of hiding and not being transparent, being open, and blaming others. And the result of this sin in Genesis chapter 3 is the curse of God that comes not only to both of them to bring enmity in their relationship, pain, ruined relationships, everything's harder, work is harder, but even the world itself experiences the consequences of groaning against sin. They are cast out of the garden, and at the gate of the garden, an angelic cherubim is placed guarding the gardens with a sword that says, you shall not pass. And the sword is the picture of the judgment of God for the failure of Adam and Eve. This is the way sin came into the world originally, and that it infects all of the creation that follows after. The act of eating of that fruit, this is key, was an act of rebellion against the authority of God over their lives. We sin against God when we say no to His rule, reject His word, His will, His law, His character in an act of defiance against Him. John Stott has summarized the nature of sin with a quote that I'm going to put on the screen for you. He describes sin as the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God Himself. This is what happened originally. God set a parameter and it was transgressed. And so, sin entered the world. And you can tell what follows in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, there's murder, where Cain murders his brother Abel. In Genesis chapter 6, there's the wickedness of the heart of mankind that spreads through all of the land so that God regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved His heart. And all of creation is subject to the curse and futility, Romans Chapter 8, verse 21, 22, tell us. Adam lived 130 years and he brought forth children, as the Bible says, in his own likeness and after his image. In Genesis uh, chapter 5 and verse 3, it tells that when Adam then brought forth his progeny, they were in his likeness. That is, in his likeness as having sinned against his God. That's how sin came in originally. There's so much to learn here. We've taught on this subject before, but we probably need to take a next, secondly, to talk about what does this mean for us as you follow the Bible line universally or theologically? That Adam and Eve sinned against God in an act of rebellion, how does that affect all of the rest of humanity? Well, we're told this. 
in the New Testament more. We said last week that the, the idea of the image of God is filled out throughout all of the Bible, and so is this issue of sin. I'm going to put on the screen, maybe you want to write it down, but secondly, I want to talk about how sin is applied universally to all humans born today. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul sort of assumes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because, everybody, all sin. There is some way in which the Apostle Paul in the New Testament describes the universal application of all of humanity being the progeny of Adam and Eve as experiencing the same moral flaw of sinfulness because of the one man, Adam. Verse 13, not on the screen, says, For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. Um, and then there's much that we won't talk about in chapter 5 of Romans. But in verse 17, the second verse that I would just bring to your attention, verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, here's the good news now, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And Paul takes in Romans chapter 5 the analogy of the first Adam and the second Adam himself. One produced a progeny that has sin and death because they are associated in the created order with Adam to be compared eventually and more fully with those who have life in Christ and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. One more verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This is the way the Bible describes. Adam sinned, all sinned. He is the head of the human race, and therefore all of the human race theologically is implicated in the sin of Adam. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That's the way the Bible and God describes our association as being in the image of God that our, our father Adam failed and defiled the image of God, did not represent Him, and now all of His descendants have the same flaw of in sin our mothers conceived us. One more place, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's another verse, maybe write it down, verse 21 and 22. Paul says here, for as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, what? All die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. There is a, a, a punitive curse and judgment that when sin entered into the world, all who followed Adam were born in sin. This is the way the Bible describes and this is um, the way the Christian view of the world is different than the way many people think about people being born. Born as a blank slate or born basically good. And the Bible says we, we were born 
in association with Adam, in our nature, we are sinners. And our statement says, by nature and by choice. Both of these are true of us. We're not born good. We're not born neutral and say, well, I hope I make it. And we would all verify that by the time you know, a, a child gets to a certain age, you can see the thread of Adam, right? You can see the re- rebellion in the heart of mankind. And the theological way in a Christian worldview says that we were born this way because our human image of God manifestation is flawed because sin entered into the world and we are sinners in that way. This is not this is not an idea that is embraced broadly in the world. The way the Bible portrays that that we are all originally sinners and depraved and away from the God, the, the character of God that he created us in. We're going to see it more when we look number 3 at how does it show up personally. Still with me? Told you it was going to be bad news for a minute, right? Okay, but this is this is important to understand. How does sin show up personally in us? Again, we're helped by Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 with the last phrase of verse 24, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. All that matters is that you are a human. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person has fallen short of, think about the image, we were created by God for God to glorify Him and we fall short in living out that way. How sin is experienced personally, all have sinned and fall short of the glory that He created us for, by Him and for Him. So there are about five or six words in the Bible that describe, in various nuances, sin. I'm going to put these on the screen. You may want to write them down. These are the Greek transliteration of the word. And the first is hamartia. Hamartia. And that is the word that's used in the verse we just looked at. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means missing the mark or failing to reach a goal. So many of you probably who grew up in church, when I grew up in church, I heard this illustration that missing the mark is like being an archer, that you take the bow and you pull it back and you let it go and it falls about five feet in front of the target and you miss the mark. You miss the bullseye and you might hit the outside, but what's the mark? It's it's the bullseye. And the archer, really, that, that's used in the Bible frequently of an archer or someone hurling a spear and the spear misses the mark. We all fall short of the glorious goal of God, which is that we would be like Him and represent Him in the world. And when we sin, we fail to be like Him or represent Him as created in His image. This is this idea of missing the goal that we were created to be like. Remember that a low view of sin leads to a low view of salvation. 
if I don't have an idea that I'm missing the mark, then I don't appreciate salvation. And I think this is part of the worrisome trend that we minimize sin, that we actually are estranged from God, we've missed the mark. And so we don't appreciate what true salvation actually is. Because I'm okay. Or at least compared to you. And we have a tendency to look at someone else and say, well, I'm not like that. So I'm closer to the mark. And if that's our view of sin, then our view of salvation is going to be diminished. Sin is missing the mark. A.W. Tozer said the essence of sin is a rebellion against divine authority, saying no to him. It's any lack of conformity to the moral law of God, to his will, to his way, to his character, in our attitude, in our nature, in our actions. It includes not only our activity and our individual actions, but our attitudes and our values and our will. It's trying to live without God. It's the distortion of the image that God gave to us. It's falling short of the mark. The second word is adikia, which means unrighteousness, and similar to poniria, wickedness and evil, which both relate to an internal disposition of the heart, like what's on the inside. I, I'm, I'm wicked. I'm distorted. The heart is wicked and deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? It talks about an internal quality. The next two words, parabasis, paraptoma, talk about sin as a deliberate trespass or stepping over a boundary. It's another way the Bible portrays that this is the parameter that God said and you shall not go. Stepping over the boundary or a trespasser. And the last word is anomia, a violation of a known law. That's the way the Bible talks about it. You can think of all the ways where God has said this, and yet I'm going to cross over. I'm going to deny the law of God, and it's all the ways the Bible talks about sinfulness. Some of the sins we do deliberately, some we're not even aware, but we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Once we realize that, then the good news becomes into sharper focus and, and so much more helpful. If we say we have no sin, the Bible says we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Psalm 51, David was talking about his sins and our sins affect not only our own life, but they affect all of our relationship. As we saw in the book of Genesis, that's going to affect, that's going to be true. But Psalm 51, verse 3, David says this about his sinfulness. I know my transgressions. I cross the line. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, what did David mean by that? Who had David sinned against? He sinned against Bathsheba, if you know the story. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by killing him. 
He sinned against all his people, his own family. He sinned against Israel because he was the king. But he said, I have sinned against you, and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're justified when you say, and you're blameless when you cast judgment on me because I did sin against you when I committed adultery, murdered, lied, deceived, hid. I did all those in a sociological way with the people I live with, but the primary way David thought about his sin was a transgression against God in whose image he was made. Sin's serious. And it shows up in our lives personally. It shows up universally. It showed up in Genesis originally. But how is it dealt with in the gospel? Where does all this sin leave us? Can you hang in there for one more little tidbit of bad news? Our statement says that we sinned against God and it left us alienated from God and under His wrath. You go home today and you say, when I went to church today, the pastor talked about the wrath of God. The condition that we've just been spending 20 minutes talking about is we are in this place, alienated from God and under His wrath. Very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's our life before Christ, dead in trespasses and sins. Walking according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were under God's wrath because we were sinners. Colossians chapter 1, and you at one time were alienated and hostile in your mind and in your evil deeds. You were hostile to God. Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. You think about what is our condition because we have all been convicted of being sinners before a holy God. We are spiritually dead. We are separated from God. We are under His wrath. We are enemies of His. And that's as bad as it gets. And it's bad. And you need a worldview that says every human being is worthy of dignity because they're created in the image of God and every human being is a sinner and in need of God's grace. Where does this leave us all? It leaves us with the great news of the gospel. I am going to shift now. Do you feel the weight of sinfuls, sin's power and pain and penalty? You have to feel that in order to really say yes to the gospel and say this is why I need Jesus so much. So what does the Bible say about how God deals with our sins? Well, let me begin by saying this. 
if this is true of all of us, that we are under the weight of sin and dead and separated from God, we don't need therapy first. You don't need a remedy from anyone first until you go to the one that you have offended by your sin. You don't need to try to compensate and outweigh your sinfulness by by compensating with good behavior. You don't need to compensate, you need to confess your sins. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't need to be rehabilitated. We need to repent of our sins and say no to that and say yes to Jesus. Let me show you the verses that describe it for us in the most powerful way. The Gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you of first importance that which I received. Let's read it all together from this point on. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I'm a sinner. Here's the good news of the Gospel. The Gospel I declare to you is this. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and on the third day He rose again. And everybody said? Okay, until you see the weight of sinfulness, you do not appreciate the glory of what Jesus did to forgive us of our sins. Christ died for our sins. For all of you who are trying to lead people to faith in Jesus, and you think you have to have all the answers for your apologetic explanation of how to help people understand how to become a Christian, it could be as simple as simply saying these words. We are all sinners, but Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried according to the Scriptures, and on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. Jesus died for sinners. Let me show you another one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you have been healed. What happened? Christ died for our sins. Again, I would say, the first thing you need when you understand my sin leads me to a place that I am alienated from God, I'm dead in my sins, and if I'm dead in my sins, what must happen? You must be born again, because you're dead. And if you have sins, you don't try to overcome them, you just tell them to God, I am a sinner, and God will forgive you. Repent of your sins, turn away from them. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. You might remember when Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. One more verse, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What happens? 
We're created for God, by God, in His image, and we sin. And we say to the God who created us, every act of rebellion against Him is that you are not God, I am God. No to you, yes to me. And by that, we end up in a posture of being separated, hostile, alienated from Him. And then Christ came and said, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. He who has the Son has life. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He rose again that your sins might be forgiven. And the response that is all we have left is to say, Lord, I repent and I receive you. And what's the net net? It's like, Image of God restored, forgiven, made right. We're reconciled, we're rescued, and we're renewed in Christ. And we'll look more at what that means next week. Okay, can you go home now? Do you, do you, know, you know how bad it is? But please don't leave here without understanding that the, the only way to make the bad news good, God did through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow our heads together. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't know, maybe this is a new way of thinking about where you are before God. My prayer is that you would feel the weight of having sinned against God, but that you would see the hope and forgiveness and life that Jesus Himself gives, He who bore our sins in His body on the cross, and that you wouldn't stop trying to improve your behavior and admit that you need Jesus. And that you would say of your sin, I turn away from it. I repent. Change my mind that I must not live for me, but God. And let the first response of your heart be to God. So Lord, I pray You will open every heart to you this morning. Rightly let us feel the weight of our sin, but by your Holy Spirit let us appreciate and give worship to you for the release of all of our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. We look at their word and it ends with the promise, who is worthy? To bring judgment on the world. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sins. And we are those who have been forgiven through Christ. So we just want to say, Lord, You are worthy. And now let us put this to the words of our singing to say, You deserve praise for our salvation. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be on every heart to give the assurance 
of forgiveness by His grace alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's